Dr. Scott Huey is going to give us our first period this morning, and it will be on the second sign of John. So what was the first one last night? We're going to have a test on this, so y'all better pay attention. It's not open book. That was easy. We've only got one, so Brother Scott Huey, our second sign, the healing of the ruler's son. And he has asked, if you look at your program, that we consider the record of that, which is in chapter 4. We'll be picking up verses 46 through 50. John 4, starting at verse 46. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son. <clears throat> For he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, uh, the nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. Let's give our attention to Brother Scott. Good morning, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, the young people and friends. Really good to be with everyone here. Uh, we've got a wonderful lesson this morning. Uh, there's there's one verse I want to read. We had some wonderful remarks so far by our brothers. There's a verse, and I was as I was considering this subject. There's a verse that. I wanted to read to kind of to set the tone, and it's uh, one you're all familiar with. It's in, it's in Colossians 2, 3, where the apostle writes, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Of course, he's speaking of our Lord. And I want you to just let those words soak in a minute. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know, this is really a wonderful verse, and, and what a grand and sweeping statement that is, if we consider that. I mean, first of all, it's, it's hidden. We have to dig it out. We have to be workers, and we have to labor, uh, requiring effort on our part. And also, it's complete. It's all. It's everything. You know, and what is, what is that? It's the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know, the Diaglot provided an interesting alteration in the translation it says in which are all the treasures of the wisdom and of the knowledge stored up and you notice the definite article that occurs in the original you know, there's a lot uh, that passes for treasure and wisdom in the world around us that we really all know is really not you know in the Lord are really the true treasures of wisdom and knowledge that doesn't, you know, pass away like the things around us will. You know, what is that wisdom and knowledge? It is none other than the wisdom of God manifest in the flesh, which ultimately, you know, understanding that and uh, you know, developing that within us will result in eternal life, which is um, for a multitude. So. You know, as we, you know, there's something in the in the in the book 
on the eight signs by Brother Olman, which I'm sure all the brothers probably looked at and referred to at least some. He wrote something in the front of it. I should have written it down. But whereas we study this, we attempt to draw closer to the personage of the Lord, the glory of the personage of the Lord, our Lord Jesus. And I think that's certainly true as we look at it and start to consider our Lord closely and His actions in these signs. I mean, it's really awesome to consider Him. And he, he really, it becomes evident to us that he definitely is a reflection of his Father's character. In Acts 2, in verse 22, I'm going to read you a verse. This is, you know, this is the Apostle Peter on Pentecost. And he said, you know, bearing on our subject here, he said, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Speaking of our Lord, he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles, and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. So by this time, you know, these people had been witness to this man and his mighty presence and works among them. So he has miracles, which, I mean, the word here just means power. I mean, he and he manifested the power of God in all manner and everything that he did. His very speech was with power. Wonders. You know, which really means that's the miracles. It's something marvelous that he did and the many uh, amazing things that he did that, you know, testified that he was of the Father. And finally, we have signs, which we're going to consider this morning. And it's already been mentioned that this really just means a token. It is something representing something else. So in the signs, I think we have a representation of what the Lord intends to accomplish. So if we look at when we look at the signs, you know, it's it's very apt description that they are signs or signposts or markers pointing to something else because that's what we see. And I think the closer we consider it, we see that it is it's a foreshadowing of the glorious future age. And really, he makes this statement. Peter does in verse in that verse, and he of this power and of the miracles of the Lord and his tokens, that really is to the end of, in verse 36, really is, is the ultimate reason for it, Acts 2.36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So this is the ultimate purpose for which these things were manifest in the Son, that Jesus would be both Lord and Christ, which really is a parable foreshadowing the future glory. So, you know, Lord willing, this morning this is going to be our approach to look at this sign, I guess, in a thematic fashion uh, as a as a token foreshadowing the future glory uh, of the you know and the wondrous works of the Lord that He will do at His return. And I think that you know, as our brother noted in the prayer this morning, I think that. Uh, it's certainly, you know, the things that we see going around in the world around us really ought to give us a little sense of urgency. You know, I was talking to a brother this morning. We ought, he, he noted that we ought to be on the edge of our seat. That's a really good way to put it because of the turmoil and the upheaval that we see in the world, both natural and political, I think certainly herald the Lord's return. So we need to be ready. And what better way for us to be spending our time, I guess, than to be here with one another and considering the Word. But for the sign, um, let's talk about this sign. I think the first thing I would note is that in verse 46 that was read, 
that this sign has a definite link to the first sign, which our brother brought to us last night, in locale. In other words, that is, it's in Cana of Galilee. So there's a, there's a connection back to the first sign, I believe. We see that very purposefully there in that verse 46. This is an important detail. I think no detail as we look at these signs needs to be overlooked. I mean, everything is very, and this is the word of Yahweh. It is pure and tried, and every word is very critical. So what do we determine from this detail? I think many brethren have rightly discerned that the son, sick unto death, represents natural Israel, who were definitely very spiritually ill at the beginning of the Lord's work and his first advent. This condition really has existed down through the ages, save for a remnant. And this will also be their condition at his return in power and glory. So since we have a connection here in locale to the first sign where the marriage feast was, and we had an excellent exposition of that last night, you know, the marriage feast representing the, you know, the marriage of the Lamb, the wonderful union of the bride of Christ with their Lord for eternity. So we have a picture there in that first sign of the opening times of Christ's return, you know, the, where the, the glorified Christ body becomes one. So if we see that, so if those signs are, are linked there with this locale, perhaps then if we, if we can see a progression of events between these two signs confirming the truth of what the Lord will do at his return from, that we know from other places in the Word. So I think we have significant words in verse 47. What do the noblemen say? He said, when he heard that Jesus was come. You know, these were the words of the nobleman. They were very welcome words. He had heard this news and he had eagerly sought out his Lord. You know, what a glorious time it will be when these words are really uh, realized in the fullest sense. So, if we go back to the marriage, we can consider a sequence toward the second sign. I just want to give you a little outline of a few points here that I'll go over. Of course, we know that the marriage was the opening of Christ's ministry, his first ministry. His work among men began. So perhaps this foreshadows the work that he will begin and undertake at his first advent. He attends the marriage. A great miracle was worked. Nobody could doubt that. The water of the Word becomes wine, the spiritual life, of the kingdom age, even eternal life. You know, in verse 11, uh, our brother brought out last night of chapter 2, says it was the, it was the beginning of signs and man, the manifesting forth of his glory. So if we think about that in the fullest sense, you know, Christ in the days of his flesh manifested his Father's glory perfect in his character. Of course, we know when he returns, it will be done in a physical sense as well. Next, our Lord visits Capernaum, which we know means the village of consolation. Is not this an apt description of what will be the glorious lot of the community in Sinai, you know, recently consoled and freed from that great enemy's sin? Next, if we go down the verses, our Lord enters Jerusalem, and the temple area is cleansed from those that were making a merchandise of the Lord's work. Organized religion is put on notice. As will be the case 
in the future glorious entry into Jerusalem by our Lord and his saints with him. You know, we have a reference. It's really interesting in that, in that chapter. We have a reference to the, the temple of his body. You know, the temple of his body, which I think you know, we can look forward to the, you know, the glorified body, the multitudinous Christ body. And through this mighty display of power in Jerusalem, many believe on him. We read that in verse 23 of chapter 2. Next, he meets with Nicodemus. And his name means victory of the people. So we have the Jewish leaders instructed in believing. So we have the seed of the truth planted in the remnant of Jewish believers. Next, Jesus baptizes representing an introduction into the covenant. That's in chapter 3 and verse 22. From there, we have the preaching to the Gentiles in Samaria. The word of life is published to the nations. The mid-heaven gospel is proclaimed. So finally, we come down to the sign that we're going to consider this morning. The Lord returns to Cana, you know, where the glory was first manifest. The nobleman's son, who was near death, is healed. And perhaps this nobleman represents this Nicodemus class of natural Jewry. So Israel's national revival is completed in the healing of the nobleman's son. So I think it's kind of interesting, you know, it it doesn't fit. I mean, there's going to be some, it's a shadow, but it's some interesting points. I think we see in the connection with Cana to the first and the second sign. So I think that, you know, one of the things that always strikes me is when we look at the types and the shadows is that they, is they always, and this is something real important for young Bible students as well as older Bible students, is the types and the shadows always confirm the truth. They never confirm false doctrine. They confirm the truth and what we understand the fundamentals of the gospel are, that Christ will come back to the earth and reestablish his kingdom and so on and so forth. We don't see heaven going in the types. We don't see, you know, immoral soulism or any other such uh, false things. I think this progression that we consider here is really even further enhanced when we consider the locale a little bit closer. This word Cana signifies a place of reeds. Uh, it's from a Hebrew word signifying to erect, to create, and by extension, purchase. And I think really all of those are really significant to the lesson if you think about it. It is mentioned three times in connection with the signs. It's mentioned at the marriage. It's mentioned in verse 11 of chapter 2. And it's also mentioned in verse 46 here of this sign. And it's also linked to Nathaniel in chapter 21, verse 2. And then, you know, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. Now, why is Nathaniel attached to Cana? Recall Nathaniel was one of the first followers of the Lord, the fifth to be exact. So he was the man that received grace. The Lord found him under a fig tree. He also called him an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. And it's it's also very interesting, at that point, Nathanael recognizes Jesus as the Son of God and the King of Israel. What does this bring to our mind? I think it's obvious it points to the promise of the kingdom, when every man will dwell under his own vine and, and fig tree. His name means the gift of God. So he may represent the believer who receives the gift of God, even grace unto eternal life in the peaceful habitation of the kingdom age. 
Now, if we look at this, this really, it's a Hebrew word, Cana is, and if you look at the Old Testament usage, it even gets more interesting. It, it's mentioned three times in the book of Joshua as a stream marking out the border of Manasseh, which means forgetting, and double fruit, Ephraim. Now, isn't that interesting? So it marks out a border or a line of demarcation from forgetting and double fruit. So we think about the transition to the kingdom age. It is used for describing the lampstand. It's the same word. Not the stem, but the branches. I think is, is significant. It was one of the three principal spices for the holy anointing oil. And it's actually translated uh, calamus. It was also used in the remarkable prophecy of Isaiah 42. I'm going to read Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. You're familiar with these verses where it says, uh, this is where Yahweh declares the character of his servant. He says, Behold my servant whom I, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up, or cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed, or a cana, shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. So we see this bruised reed. It's the same word again. It's the cana. And in this prophecy, the teaching is, that the work of the servant was to be restorative, not destructive. It was ultimately to be healing in nature. And you might refer to Matthew 12, 20 and 21. We won't go there right now, but it, where this scripture is quoted. And the blessing is extended to the Gentiles, which is very interesting. Finally, the flax and the reed are together again. You know That we're seen here in Isaiah 42 are seen together again in Ezekiel 40, in verse 3, where we have the, they're in the hand of the man of brass. We know this is the, uh, the opening vision that Ezekiel had of the wonderful temple. And uh, Brother Sully had this really interesting note about this man of brass that had the reed, he had a line of flax and a measuring reed in his hand. He said that the man of brass then, holding in his hand a line of flax and a measuring reed, or the cana, is the appropriate figure of Jesus and his brethren in visible, corporeal, and active manifestation and manifestation during the building of the temple on Mount Zion. Now, if we look a little bit closer at these symbols, the reed and the flax, well, the reed was indigenous to Egypt, and which kind of would maybe make us think of the Gentiles. The flax appears to be more associated with Israel. You know, the first mention of the flax was in the leprous garment of, in Leviticus. It was used by Rahab to cover the spies. Um, probably the most striking example is when this garment that Jeremiah wore uh, in Jeremiah 13, verse 11, was likened to the whole house of Israel and Judah, the garment that was, that was ruined. So, if we look at, in a kind of roundabout way, making this point here, if we look at these two symbols together, I think that are in the hand of this brazen-like man when he stands in the gate and measures out the future temple of glory, 
where Yahweh will dwell in Christ and his bride. I think we can see both uh, you know, Jewish and Gentile extraction here in this sign. So, in this word Cana, I think the, the, if you look at it in, in all the places it's used, it unmistakably points us to the kingdom age. And Galilee is no less significant. We all probably know that you know, that word means a, a circuit or a circle, therefore implying something that's continuous and never-ending, even eternity. It's another word that's Hebrew in origin and is mentioned in Joshua 20, verse 7, in connection with the cities of refuge. Jesus was rightly associated with this area. He was called Jesus the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And most of his ministry was spent in this area. There was a large Gentile remnant in Galilee, a Gentile element among the population. Thus it was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. This caused the area to be despised by many of the Jews. And also, very importantly, from this area came the Lord's disciples. So, as we consider this locale of this second sign, I believe we see the kingdom foreshadowed. We also see a hint, or maybe really even more than a hint, of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the covenant, into the glorious hope of Israel. If we think about this, it's, you know, it's really encouraging. It kind of gives it a, a personal uh, attachment for us, you know, because I think that this is something we probably most of us in here can be very grateful for, because we're not blessed to be of the natural seed of Abraham. So the inclusion of the of the Gentiles into the hope you know, is, a, is a wonderful thing for us. There's one more important thing that I want to mention about the Cana before we leave this. I hope you'll be patient with me trying to make this point. But in the back in the you know, we talked about it being a part of the holy anointing oil. Of course, we know the oil was very significant. If we look at the, the anointing oil in the tabernacle service, it was for sanctification and for preparation of the furniture and so forth. And it had these excellent fragrant properties. And actually the calamus was this reed, the cana, uh, was, was an important component of this oil. However, the oil or the fragrance, rather, of this cana became more pronounced through the bruising of this reed. And I think we, if we think about the servant prophecy there in Isaiah 42, it, we can see the connection. So likewise is our character refined through the bruising of life's trials. And we see this in the nobleman, I think. The nobleman, uh, he undergoes a bruising of trial from which he greatly benefits. So as we look at this place, Cana of Galilee, I mean, we have really a beautiful picture presented, I think, to the eye of faith. We have, you know, believers who are upright and erect in the truth, having been bruised through trial, and finally attaining the reward of eternal life with their Lord. So that's the setting. We have the, the second sign for the second sign. The account is really quite brief. We had read for us. Um, it's brief, but it's very dramatic, and it's full of a lot of emotion. You know, the scene opens. We're all familiar with it. Opens with the nobleman, or as the margin notes, he was a courtier or a ruler. He was probably an officer of some stature in Herod's court. He is beseeching Jesus to come and heal his son. And Moffat has he went to him and begged him to cure his son. 
So the scene is a very poignant one. I mean, uh, is anybody in here can imagine, a, you know, a parent that has a very sick child is going to be in a very dis- desperate situation. It was uh, the man was in despair, and he was, uh, you know, probably uh, quite distraught. I think, uh, you know, the word used to denote the state of the son is a sickness unto death. It's the same word you used to describe Lazarus's condition. So it wasn't. Uh, it was a very grave condition. You know, it's also a very important detail that. The nobleman sought out the Lord. This is an important point. Verse 47 states, when he heard. And the word doesn't mean just simply to hear, but it means to attend to or to understand or perceive. So the fact that the nobleman acted on the report he had of Jesus working miracles, I think he perceived that in this man Jesus there was still yet hope for him and his son. So he took initiative. He realized the condition of his family. And if we think about who this nobleman may represent, you know, this ruling class of, of natural Israel who heard Jesus, saw the miracles, and recognized this man for who he was. We think about him perhaps as a, you know, this Nicodemus class. We can kind of see the connection. He recognized his family was sick and needed what the Lord could offer. So he moved to get help. You know, and really, this if we think about it, brethren, this is, is this not the case for all of us? I mean, who, come to, who would come to the truth? We look at our condition, and we become made aware of the hopelessness of our existence and then how we're, it's a very temporary thing unless we move and act upon a, a way to be healed. So the Lord was uh, in it, was there when the nobleman approached him in, in, in a somewhat desperate state. In verse 48, the Lord replies to the nobleman, Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Of course, if we, as we've considered a sign as a token or a mark. Um, you know, and at first, when, I, when you read this account, you, you may think, well, that sounds a little harsh from the Lord, his reply. A little bit, you know, maybe firm with him. Um, I think we have to keep in mind, though, that that our Lord always displayed the character of His Father in everything that He did, and and also the you know this is just for your consideration. The original Greek had no punctuation, probably. So perhaps the Lord addresses the nobleman here in the form of a question. I don't know that for sure, but I think that. If it was, you know, stated, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, uh, it would soften the reply somewhat. And we, if we, the design of the Lord was to encourage, not discourage, the nobleman. He wanted to bring the nobleman in and increase his faith and strengthen him. I mean, we don't know this for sure. I think this would have softened his reply and offered the nobleman hope. And, and of course, that... Um, he would have sought to encourage this man who was in dire straits. The word believe really means to have faith. And it seems that in verse 48, um, there is a contrast 
being drawn back to the prior events of verses 39 to 42 when he was among the Samaritans. Uh, I'm just going to read these few verses. And it says in verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of the city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, He told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. And he said unto the women, Woman, now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So we see a contrast here. The Samaritans believed on the Lord for his word he spoke. They saw no uh, miracles. This has really been the, the lot of most Gentiles during the two days of verse 40 of the Gospels preaching among them, or the 2,000 years, not seeing miracles, but for the power and teaching of the recorded Word of God. You know, why is this so? The natural seed of Abraham had many advantages. For unto them were committed the oracles of God. Yet here, they had been eyewitnesses to the miracles of the Son of God, yet only a remnant, just a few, would believe. This is true of the nation since its birth at Sinai. We know they were you know, called a stiff-necked people. Again, why is this so? Why were the Jews intransigent to the, you know, this glory of the Lord? Why were so many blind to this fact? I think that it's clearly the Father's wisdom. This is Yahweh's design so that two families of man would ultimately combine to bear the glory of his memorial name. Again, I think this is something we can be very, very grateful for. What a powerful exhortation it is to be of the remnant that has come to a knowledge of the, this wonderful knowledge of the truth, who are not blessed to be of the seed of natural Abraham. So, so far, if we look at this account, you know, we have the Samaritan class, which could represent the remnant of the Gentiles who hear and believe the truth. And, it, and that word, Samaria, means is from shamar, which means to hedge about, to guard, to protect, to attend to. This is their attitude toward the truth and their Lord. And then we have this nobleman class, the remnant of natural Jewry who saw the miracles and believed. They will be as noblemen in the court of the future king, perhaps seen in Nicodemus and exemplified in the words of the Lord and to Thomas, which is in John 21:29. if you want to refer to that. And then we have the unbelieving class of the Jews, best seen in the Pharisees and the ruling class. Even after seeing the miracles of the Lord, they spurned him. Sadly, there are many, many examples of this in the gospel record. They will come to realize their folly. So the narrative continues in verse 49, and the nobleman appeals to the Lord a second time. He says, Sir, sir, come down. And this sir here should really be rendered Lord. It's only translated sir six times out of over 750 occurrences. Is the nobleman impatient, or is he responding to gently 
being corrected from the Lord. Jesus is causing this man to realize his weakness before extending mercy. The nobleman's faith is yet weak. He takes the instruction patiently and displayed respect. Acknowledges Jesus as Lord. He does believe the Lord can heal his son. So in this sense, he displays the proper humility necessary. Yet his faith is still imperfect, thinking that the Lord's presence is required. Of course, you know, the Lord was not going to come down. He, he, this point was made in the Brother Almond's book that the Lord was on a very high plane and purpose in manifesting his Father's glory and his Messiahship. So he was not going to come down from that purpose. He desired that men uh, elevate themselves uh, to approach him. The nobleman is going to undergo a trial or a bruising to perfect his character. So the next thing we have is in verse 50, these wonderful words in verse 50. The nobleman hears, Go thy way, thy son liveth. What wonderful words of mercy proceeded from the Lord's lips, teaching that the words from the Lord had in them the power of life. The effect here was twofold. First, life was given to the son who was at the point of death. Also, very importantly, the nobleman who was despairing and distressed in spirit was now revived, having a whole new perspective and outlook. He was beginning to know now the power of Yahshua, or Yah's salvation, in a very personal sense. The life of the young man was got, give, given at the second appeal, resulting in this miracle. This typifies the grace and the supplications to be poured out upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem at the second advent. You know, the next thing we read is, the man believed the word. Now, this is pretty interesting. What caused this man to accept this word from the Lord? You know, Jesus told him simply that, Go thy way, thy son liveth. Why did he accept Jesus at this? It says he had faith, or in other words, he was assured and convinced. I think that, you know, as we read the record, and we're all, we've all thought about this, I'm sure, that the Lord's presence must have been with great power. I mean, yes, he was, an or he was a man, flesh and blood, in the days of his flesh, but he had the character of his father. So I, I can imagine that his very presence exuded power. His character was probably very vigorous and forceful. And we don't know this, but I would imagine that as, this, as he looked upon the nobleman and extended this great you know, blessing to him and told him, Go thy way, thy son liveth, that he probably looked at him very, you know, earnestly with his eyes, very convincingly. And, you know, there's, there's, there's many references, I'll just, a couple of them, you know, in John 7 it says, Never man spake like this man. And so what does that mean? Never man spake like this man. Or, um, and they were astonished at his doctrine is another thing we read. And in Luke we read, for his word was with power. So I would imagine that his, his physical presence and his character as he shone forth the glory of his Father 
was very, very uh, captivating, to say the least. So this nobleman was very assured and convinced of what his Lord told him. Go thy way, thy son liveth. So the nobleman is very, you know, a very good point. He was compliant. He was obedient to the word of his Lord. He recognized the Lord for who he was, and he went his way. So he exhibits not only faith, but obedience. You know, apparently he did tarry some because it said he arrived at his home the next day. He probably thought to stay and hear more instruction from the Lord. I think that's probably, you know, pretty evident because he went back and was able to instruct his house as we read further um, in the account. So in verse 51, you know, we really have the climax of this sign. You know, it's a time of joy and exultation in the household of the nobleman. His servants came out to meet him as he approached, obviously very excited to tell their master of the remarkable turnaround of his son. They had witnessed a miracle, yet they still had to be instructed further to really understand and complete their faith. You know, it's very interesting when we read this that, that the child, the Lord didn't have, didn't have to be physically there. The child was far off when he was healed. This will be a, the relation and the state of natural Israel at the Lord's second advent. There will be a healing of them brought nigh through the blood of Christ. We know from Ephesians 2 and verse 13. And in the twinkling of an eye will their mortality be swallowed up of life. There's a reference in Isaiah I want to read. It's interesting in Isaiah 57, verses 15 through 19, where the prophet writes, For thus saith the high and the lofty, the lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, neither will I always be wroth. For the spirit should fail before me and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth, and I smote him. I hid me and was wroth, and he went on forwardly in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace, to him that is far off. And to him that is near, saith Yahweh, and I will heal him. Now, Paul quotes this in Ephesians 2, verses 13 to 17. I think, let's look at his application of this. It's interesting. Um, Ephesians 2, starting at verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God and one body by the tree, having slain the enmity thereby. And he came and preached peace to you 
which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. So there's that reference there in verse 17 back to Isaiah. Now, I think we would all agree that this first application of this prophecy is to the Gentiles who were far off, and the Jews who were nigh through the relation to the fathers. But now, Gentiles, some Gentiles, a remnant, have become nigh through Christ, as the Apostle says. Perhaps we can see a secondary application of Isaiah's prophecy where spiritual Israel, or you know, the Israel of God, which is really Jew and Gentile, who are nigh, and natural Israel in unbelief are far off, yet still to be healed in this far off condition. Of course, the day of healing is a day of great joy for us, brethren, of which we can only really begin to imagine the blessings of. I mean, in Romans 11:15 we read, For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, speaking of you know, the natural Israel, what shall, be, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? So, you know, it's a pretty exciting time. Very exciting. So, this fever or this state of delirium will be removed in this glorious seventh hour, the great Sabbath that remaineth for the people of God. So excited was the nobleman that he instructed his household. And it's interesting, in, in, uh, in Matthew, which brought to mind this verse in Matthew 13, verse 52, you know, you're familiar with it, where when he heard, I mean, we can imagine as he was instructed in the Lord's presence of the truth, that he probably became... Um, we have a lot of contrast here. We have a man who was in despair in a very hopeless condition, whose son was near death, and then all of a sudden that situation is turned around. So we can imagine the burden lifted off of him. I mean, it would have been incredible. Not only was, son, was his son going to live, but he heard the word of life. And, and it was indeed a treasure to him. You know, we read in Matthew 13:52. Every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like a man unto a man that is a householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. So this this uh, nobleman being instructed, his heart was just welling over with this treasure that he had heard. And as soon as he noted the facts of his son in the time of his healing, I'm sure he proceeded immediately to instruct his household so that they may be saved. You know, this morning, we have another in our readings today. We have a wonderful verse. I'm sure I want to read to you. It's in Psalm 119. Um, and it's verse 162. Which made me think of the nobleman. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. You know, is that our attitude, brethren, when we seek to study the Scriptures? Do we, you know, rejoice at the Word as if, as if it's a treasure? You know, and it is a treasure. So excited was this nobleman that he went home. His heart was overflowing with this goodness that he had received, and he instructed his whole house. And there's other instances of this. We can We think about the... You know, the, the Philippian jailer, 
in his situation, he instructed his whole house. Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue in Acts 18. Uh, interestingly, in Ezekiel 39.25, let's look at that reference real quick. We have uh, an instruction of the whole house that will be saved, or a verse that refers to that. You know, Ezekiel 39.25 says, Therefore thus saith Adonai Yahweh, Now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob, and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel, and will be jealous for my holy name. Well, you know, this... The context of this reference here is that Israel has just undergone a bruising trial. You know, as Gog has come down. So at this juncture, you know, they will be instructed, and the whole house ultimately of Israel will be saved. We can also, it's interesting, as I was looking at. Uh, lesson, and it gives us very much a pattern of what we know Yahweh will do yet in the earth, and that, and that ultimately uh, in the reestablishment of the kingdom of Israel, that you know Israel in the kingdom age will be the first dominion. The people will be restored. The nation will be healed. And if we look in, in, in Jeremiah, I want you to look at Jeremiah 30 with me, and I want just some closing thoughts here. I'm not going to take the time to read. We're just going to look at a couple of verses. I mean, if we Jeremiah 30, it's a wonderful chapter where we have this full restoration of Israel promised. But I think if we look at the chapter, I was considering this chapter. I'm not sure what took me back there, but I think we kind of see in it a um, we see the same pattern that we see in this second sign. Perhaps we know that this time of restoration that Jeremiah writes of here, uh, Israel has to undergo a bruising. Or, you know, this Cana has to be bruised to produce this character and this fragrance that's sweet and acceptable unto Yahweh in the sun. And in this chapter, it's called Jacob's Trouble. And I think we see, you know, kind of the same thing in the nobleman. The nobleman, and he endured, and his character suffered trial and was bruised. But it produced something that was well pleasing to the Father. If we look at verse, just look at verse five. We see it says, "Thus saith Yahweh: We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace." And this was really the condition of the nobleman. He he was in fear of, of trouble. He was very troubled for the condition of his son. We look down to verse ten. We read, "Therefore fear not, O my servant Jacob." saith Yahweh, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. So they will be saved from afar. We know they will be regathered from afar, but they are also afar off spiritually, and they will be gathered and saved from this condition, this apart condition. Next, in verse 17, we see that we read, For I will restore health unto thee, and I will heal thee of thy wounds, saith Yahweh. Because they called thee an outcast, saying, This is Zion, who no man seeketh after. So health will be restored. We can count on that, brethren. Israel 
has not been cast off. You know, the redemption of Israel is really, you know, the essence of the kingdom. This will most surely happen as it did in the parable of the nobleman's son or the sign. In verse 20 we read, Their children also shall be as aforetime, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all that oppress them. So the children will be restored to health. The blessing ensues once they are healed. In verse 21, the next verse we read, And their nobles shall be of themselves. Which really we can understand that as they they will rule as a prince with God. And their nobles shall be of themselves, and their governor shall proceed from the midst of them, and I will cause them him to draw near, and he shall approach unto me. For who is this that has engaged his heart to approach unto me, saith Yahweh? So ultimately this nobleman, or this noble class of Jewry, who recognizes and is caused to learn their Lord, will rule with Christ. And finally, I'll just read the last verse. In closing, I'll just read the last verse of the sign. This again is the second sign that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. So, thank you for your attention.